You are listening to Dr. George Murray, guest speaker at Harvest Community Church in Catanning, Pennsylvania. We pray that you will be challenged today as you listen to a sermon entitled, Missions and the Lordship of Jesus Christ, recorded on December the 18th, 2016. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org. Let's join Dr. Murray as he preaches. Today is the fourth Sunday of Advent. The word Advent means a coming or appearance. And the Christian church has adopted that word, Advent, to describe the first coming of Jesus Christ to this world. And the reason why we call Christmas the first coming of Jesus Christ is because we believe Jesus Christ is coming to earth again And we call that coming the second coming or advent of Jesus Christ. At his first coming, Jesus came to die and rise again. And at his second coming, Jesus will come to rule and reign forever and ever. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we look backward to his first coming and we look forward to his second coming. Now, what is my point in telling you what I just said about the first and second advents of Jesus Christ? Here's my point. While we wait in joyous anticipation for Christ's second coming, there are still over 2 billion people living in this world right now who still have never heard of his first coming. One of my favorite Christmas poems was written by Martha Snell Nicholson, and is titled by one word, the word suppose, followed by a question mark. Listen to this poem. Suppose that Christ was never born, that far away Judean morn, Suppose that God, whose mighty hand created worlds, had never planned a way for man to be redeemed. So suppose the wise men only dreamed that guiding star whose light still glows down through the centuries. Suppose. Suppose Christ never walked here in men's sight, our blessed way, the truth, the light. Suppose he counted all the cost and never cared that you were lost, and never died for you and me, or shed his blood upon that tree, upon a cruel cross. Suppose that having died, he never rose, and there was none to save our souls from darkness and the grave. As far as unreached peoples know, these things that I've supposed... Are so. As far as unreached peoples know, these things that I've supposed are so. And when we talk about unreached peoples, we're talking about 2.35 billion people, and a large concentration of those people live in India, that great bleeding ulcer on the underbelly of Asia. And I want to commend Harvest Community Church for giving to the Lord some of your brightest and best young people to reach that part of the world with the good news of Jesus Christ. One year ago, I had the privilege of flying to India and spending some quality time with the 1016 team sent there by this church. 
And I can tell you that their presence and ministry is making an eternal difference in that unreached part of the world. So thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your gifts and don't stop. And one of the core values of Harvest Community Church is world evangelization. And world evangelization includes two things. It includes evangelism, which is reaching people who don't believe in Jesus, and it includes missions, which is reaching people who don't know there is a Jesus to believe in. And that's why you are sending and supporting missionaries in various parts of the world, including the 1016 team in India. Did you know that world missions is an integral part of the message and meaning of Christmas? Do you remember what the angel said to the shepherds on the night of Christ's birth? Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. Now listen. Which shall be for all people. And because missions is a very real part of the message of Christmas, I want to speak to you this morning about missions and the lordship of Jesus Christ. Missions and the lordship of Jesus Christ. And if you have a Bible, I want you to turn, please, to the Gospel of Matthew, the first book in the New Testament, chapter 28. And you also have a page in your church program this morning where you can take some notes from this morning's message. And we're going to start reading in Matthew 28, beginning with verse 19. Jesus himself is speaking Listen to what he says. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, period. If you and I take seriously this single sentence from God's holy word, it will radically affect everything we do and everywhere we go. This single sentence has been rightly called the Great Commission. Another way to say the Great Commission is to say the huge task. And in the sentence we just read from Matthew 28, Jesus tells us what he wants us to do. He tells us where he wants us to do that. And he tells us how to do that. And to see all of those things in that one sentence, we have to look closely at the verbs. There are four key verbs in the sentence we just read. By the way, did you hear about the little boy at school that was having trouble with his verbs? He kept getting the tenses all mixed up, past, present, and future. His middle-aged school teacher made him stay after school one afternoon, and for a solid hour, she drilled him by giving him sentence after sentence, and after each sentence, he would have to tell her the tense of the main verb in that sentence. After about an hour, he started to get them all right. She said, Danny, I'm so happy. I'm going to give you one more sentence. If you get this right, you can go home. What is the tense of the main verb in this sentence? I am beautiful. He looked at her with great conviction and said, 
past tense. All right, so we have to look at the verbs. Have to look at the verbs. And there is one main verb and three helping verbs. And the main verb in Matthew 28, 19 is seen in the words, make disciples. Do you see that there? I've underlined that in my Bible. Make disciples, not converts, but disciples. Do you know the difference? Converts grow old in the Lord. Disciples grow up in the Lord. And we are commanded to make disciples. And then Jesus tells us where he wants us to do that. He says, make disciples of all nations. Now, when I study the Bible, I study every word carefully because it's the word of God. And every word's important. Please notice that when Jesus says, I want you to make disciples, he doesn't say make disciples of some nations. He doesn't say make disciples of most nations. He says, make disciples of all nations. Our Lord wants every man, woman, boy, or girl living anywhere in the world to have an opportunity to hear, understand, and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we're to make disciples of all nations, and then Jesus tells us how to do that. I love it when the Lord teaches, because he not only tells his students what they should do, he tells them how to do it. And we see that in the other three verbs in Matthew 19, uh, 28, 19, and 20. He says we are to make disciples, first of all, by going. You see that there in your Bible? Now, I'm speaking from the NIV this morning, and it says, therefore, go. It should really say, therefore, going, because in the Greek language, it's a participle. It's an I-N-G verb. So we make disciples, first of all, by going. Secondly, by baptizing. You see that there in your Bible? I've underlined that word in my Bible. Baptizing. And then thirdly, by teaching, down at the beginning of verse 20, teaching. So this is the how of the Great Commission. We make disciples by going, by baptizing, and by teaching. So since this is the how of the Great Commission, I want to talk about these three words just for a second. Let's talk about the first word, the word go. This is a strong Bible word. It's strong in the Old Testament. It's strong in the New Testament. Watch, you can study this word in Hebrew, in Greek, in Aramaic, in Syriac, in Ugaritic, in, Ara- in, in Arabic, in Mandarin, in French, English, Spanish, Italian. It always means the same thing. It means go. It's a synonym for don't stay. And when our Lord says we can't make disciples of the nations unless we go, watch, he's not talking about just going from anywhere to anywhere, but watch, he's talking about going from where people do know the message of the one true God through Jesus Christ to where people don't know the message of the one true God through Jesus Christ. He's talking about going from where people do know the message of the gospel to where people don't know the message of the gospel. He's talking about going from where people do know about Jesus to where people don't know about Jesus and won't know about Jesus unless someone leaves here and goes there. You can't Make disciples of the nations, Jesus says, if you don't go. Now, I know that not everybody physically sitting here in this room this morning will be able to go vocationally as a missionary to the unreached people of the world, but all of us here this morning must be involved in the going process. In fact, I know a church in the Midwest of our country that has divided its congregation into three distinct groups. The goers, the senders, and the disobedient. So we make disciples, first of all, by going. Secondly, by baptizing. You see that word in your Bible? I've underlined that word in my Bible. And you'll notice that when Jesus says baptizing, he says baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You see that there? Now watch. When Jesus says that, he's not telling the baptizer what to do during the ceremony of baptism. Now I have baptized 
many new believers. And it's always a joy to baptize new believers in Christ. And if you're here this morning and you're a new believer in Christ and you've never been baptized, you should be. The Bible says that's what we should do. And when I baptize new believers, I almost always say, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But here Jesus is not telling the baptizer what to say during the ceremony of baptism. He's telling us what baptism is. Baptism is open Public identification with the triune God of the Bible. There is only one God who has eternally existed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so when we call people out to be disciples of Jesus Christ, we ask them to openly identify themselves with the one true God. So we make disciples of the nations by going, by baptizing, and then lastly, down at the beginning of verse 20, look in your Bible, it says teaching. And all around the world today, hours before you and I got up, because these people are living in different time zones, missionaries prayed for, supported financially, loved by the people of Harvest Community Church, have been already today teaching Not only by what they say, but by the fact that they're there living among those people, demonstrating the reality of the message in their lives, and they're helping people to grow up into disciples of Jesus Christ. I can't think of anything I'd rather be involved in. I can't think of anything more important for Harvest Community Church to be involved in. Making disciples of all nations by going, baptizing, and teaching. But that's not what I want to talk to you about this morning. Because if you look closely at Matthew chapter 28, you will discover that the Great Commission does not begin with verse 19. The Great Commission begins with verse 18. So look in your Bible at Matthew 28 verse 18. You'll see the words on the screen. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now look at the first two words of verse 19. Therefore, go. All right, now look up here for a minute. We, an English-speaking audience, know that whenever you see the word therefore in the English language, it's always referring back to what has just been said before. So what has Jesus just said before he says, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Here is what he has just said. Listen carefully. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In the spiritual realm, in the physical realm, anywhere, everywhere, I am in charge. I am the person who tells everyone else what to do. All authority is mine. Whoa. Question. What right does Jesus Christ have to make such a categorical statement about himself? Answer. He has every right because of who he is. Who is Jesus Christ? He's God Almighty himself, the second person of the Trinity, co-equal and co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit. Of course he has all authority. And not only because of who he is, but because of what he did. What did Jesus Christ do? He left the glories of heaven, the perfection of heaven. He came to this sin-filled world. He lived a perfect life. He was unjustly accused of crimes he never committed. He was condemned to die. He died there on Calvary's cross, not for his own sin, for he had none, but for yours and for mine. He was buried in the ground. He rose again on the third day. He was seen by many witnesses. He ascended back into heaven. He's coming back again. That's why in the New Testament, in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, we read that because he did all that, came down, down, down to the humility of the cross. It says, therefore, 
God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Oh, by the way, do you know what the word Lord means? It means the one who has all authority, the one who tells everyone else what to do. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, you know, I just love it when um, I'm speaking and I look down and I see that people are taking notes. So if you're taking notes this morning, I want you to write this down. The starting point of the Great Commission is not the Great Commission. Write that down and then Follow that with this statement. The starting point of the Great Commission is the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Watch, that's why verse 18 comes before verse 19. Now, can I just kind of get a little bit more personal with you for a minute? Uh, Because my wife and I have spent our whole adult lives in world missions... I'm often asked to speak about that particular subject when I go to a church, and often I'm asked to speak at what churches call their annual missions conference. You know, they have a a weekend conference or a week when they talk about their missionaries and everything, and so I'm asked to go and speak of that. And more than once, when I go to a church to speak at their missions conference, somebody will honestly tell me that their least favorite time of the year in their church calendar is when their church has their missions conference. And I'm like, why don't you like the missions conference? And they say, because that's when the speakers all make you feel guilty. You know, somebody gets up and talks about praying more for the missionaries. I mean, who doesn't feel guilty about that? (laughs) And then somebody else gets up and talks about giving more because we need more money for the missionaries. And then somebody gets up and talks about going. And if you're like these people that have talked to me, you'll have to admit that you feel this internal resistance rising up in your heart and you're saying to yourself, I can't wait till the missions conference is over and we can get back to normal, thank you. And if that is your experience, your problem is not missions. Your problem is lordship. Because the starting point of the Great Commission is not the Great Commission. The starting point of the Great Commission is the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down, then I'll explain it. The Christian life is not a democracy. And to explain this, I need to tell you about one of my most awesome experiences a year ago. I went to India, but I also, not on the same trip, but uh, uh, not too far apart, I went to North Africa, and I went to a Muslim country, and I met out in the desert in kind of a quiet location with 1,200 young adult Arab followers of Jesus Christ, some of them former Muslims. It was a prayer conference, and they met together for a whole week to hear God's word and to pray about the possibility of becoming missionaries themselves throughout North Africa and the Middle East. How awesome is that? Now, when I went to this conference, the organizers of the conference said, now, when you fly into the country, it's a Muslim country, be very careful what you say at immigration. Don't lie but don't tell them anything more than you have to about where you're going and what you're going to be doing. So, you know, I was very careful. And then when I got to the conference, they gave me a a piece of paper, and on it was a list of all words that I couldn't use publicly when I was speaking. Vocabulary words that I... they, They gave me code words that I had to use instead of... So I couldn't use the word Christian. There was a code word for that. I couldn't use the word Muslim. There was a code word for that. So that was a little tricky, and you know, I tried to learn those words and incorporate them into my talks from the platform. And, and then when it was over, they said, now, when you leave and you go back through immigration in our country, don't take any pictures with you, you know, of where we've just, you've just been. And, 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 and don't tell them where you've been if you don't have to. And don't lie, but, you know, don't say anything more than you have to. So I was really careful, and everything went okay. And I got on the plane, and I flew up to Europe 
and then got a connecting flight from there over to the States, and I flew into the Dulles Airport in Washington, D.C. Folks, I want you to know, when I got into that airport and I got through U.S. immigration, I wanted to get down on my knees and kiss the ground. I love this country. I am red, white, and blue through and through. I love the freedoms that we have. There is no place like this in the world where people have the greatest freedoms in the world like we have here. I love our democratic form of government. Now I'm setting you up. Are you ready? Look at the statement again. The Christian life is not a democracy. The Christian life is an absolute monarchy. Write it down. There is one who is the king. There is one who is in control. There is one who tells everyone else what to do. And anyone here this morning who claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ recognizes his absolute authority, submits totally to that, and nothing less than that is the picture of the Christian life given in the pages of God's word. Look what Jesus says about himself in John chapter 13. He says, you call me Lord. Remember what the word Lord means? That means the one who has all authority. You call me Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now, I travel a lot, uh, internationally and domestically, and often I fly. And when I get on a plane, I almost always find myself seated next to somebody I've never seen before. Hear me. If you get on public transportation and sit down next to a stranger, if you do not talk to that person within one minute of sitting down, the chances are you won't talk together the whole trip. So the minute I sit down, I start to talk. I mean, they can't get away. (laughs) And I always ask them this question. I say, "Um, are you um, going home or leaving home? Well, that's an innocent question. It gets talking about home and... So we talk about that for a minute, and then I say, what do you do? Now, watch. If you ask your seat partner that question in that way, you know, you underline the word you in your sentence verbally, what do you do? I guarantee you, after they tell you what they do, they look at you and they say, what do you do? And when they ask me, I say, well, I'm the administrator of a Christian college in South Carolina where we have 1,200 students studying the Bible, the Holy Word of God, preparing to take the message of Jesus' love and forgiveness to the whole world. That begins some interesting conversations. I was on a flight from Atlanta to Cleveland, and, I, and it, was just, it was a smaller plane, and there was just two seats on my side, and I was in the aisle, and I had a seat partner by the window, and she was a very attractive, well-dressed, highly educated African-American woman university professor. So I asked her, the, you know, going home, leaving home, what do you do? And uh, she asked me what I did, and we got into a conversation. She'd just written a book, and she pulled it out, gave me a signed copy of it. That was kind of cool. And, and so about halfway to, to Cleveland, she says to me, now you told me you were on the administration of the college where you work. What exactly is your position there? And at that point, I was the president. So I said, well, I'm, I'm the president of the university. And now she's sitting next to the window, right? And I'm on the aisle seat. And she literally pulled herself away from me towards the bulkhead. She goes, oh, my goodness, I didn't know I was sitting next to the big cheese. And I said, oh, no, no. I said, that's just a title. It's no big deal. I'm just a normal person like anybody else. And this just happens to be the job that God has given me where I can serve the university best. Isn't it interesting that that's not what Jesus does here? He doesn't say, you call me Lord? Oh, no, no, that's just a title. Let's go on to talk about something else. Is that what he says? No, he says, you call me Lord? And rightly so. For that is what I am. Don't you forget it. Now, if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down, and then I'll explain. Jesus Christ is not a constitutional monarch. Jesus Christ is not a constitutional monarch. Now, Big Fred introduced just before I got up to speak, introduced my wife. 
Annette. We've been married for 47 years. We have four children, nine grandchildren. Three of our four kids are here in Pennsylvania. A good reason always to come to Pennsylvania. And my wife will tell you that what I'm going to tell you now is true because she was with me. Are you ready for this? She and I were in London, England in April of 2011 on the day when William and Kate got married. Now, truth be told, we weren't invited to the wedding. But we were there. And the only reason we were there is because I was speaking to the first ever all-European Chinese missions conference. Isn't that amazing? There's so many Chinese Christians in Europe now that they all got together, they found a big place outside of London, and they booked it, and we filled the place up, and I spoke to them for a week about world missions. And it just happened to be, you know, April 2011 when the, the big royal wedding took place. Now, the only reason I tell you about that is because Great Britain, more accurately called the United Kingdom is a constitutional monarchy. Great Britain has a ruling monarch. Somebody help me out this morning. Who is the ruling monarch of Great Britain? Thank you, Queen Elizabeth. Question, is she the person who runs that country? Answer, no. Why? Because Great Britain is a constitutional monarchy. What does that mean? That means that the citizens of Great Britain, by democratic voting process, are allowed periodically to go to the polls, cast their ballots, from the voting a political party wins the election, and from that political party a prime minister is chosen, and that's who runs the country. And the prime minister of Great Britain today is another woman by the name of Theresa May. Now, some of you might still be thinking, well, I thought it was David Cameron. No, remember, he's the guy that kind of staked his political career on the vote as to whether Britain would leave the European Union. The vote went down. He offered to resign, and he did. And in July of this year, Theresa May became the Prime Minister of Great Britain. Now, you might be thinking, okay, that's really interesting. What does this have to do with your message? All right, now watch. In Great Britain today, when the duly elected parliament meets to discuss and decide new legislation, every time the parliament votes on a new law and passes a new law, they take that law to the queen. And in the bottom right-hand corner of the last page of that piece of legislation, they place a dark, solid line. And then, out of deference and respect for her as their queen, they ask her to read the whole law and then get a pen and put her signature on that dark, solid line and in so doing, signify her approval of the new law. The interesting thing is, if the queen refuses to sign, it's still a law. Now, just a few minutes ago, I I need to confess to you. Just a few minutes ago, we sang, Oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. We sang that this morning. And I need to confess to you that while I should have been thinking about the words, I was asking myself another question. I was asking myself this question. I wonder how many people in this room singing these words, when they sing, Christ the Lord, remember what the word Lord means, the one who's the king, who has absolute authority. I wonder how many of them were really meaning this. Jesus Christ is my king, but I am his prime minister. I decide where I'm going to go. I decide what I'm going to do, but I would never think of doing those things without asking the Lord to come along and approve. Now, I have a little quiz I want to give you this morning. It's only got one question, and the answer is true or false. Do not answer out loud when you hear the question. The answer is true or false. You have a 50% chance of getting it right. Here's the question. It is good to include God in your plans. Don't answer out loud. 
Now watch. If you know anything about this holy book, which is the basis of everything that we believe and teach here at Harvest Community Church, you will have said, the minute I gave the question, you will have answered false. And your answer would have been correct. Now watch. God doesn't want to be included in your plans. He wants you to be included in his plan. And there is all the difference in the world. But everywhere I go, including Bible-believing churches like Harvest Community Church, I find Christian people who are sincerely including God in their plans. And the scary, sneaky, subtle thing about it is that most of the plans that most of them are making are in themselves perfectly legitimate. But God doesn't want to be included in your plans. He wants you to be included in his plan. And you may be sitting here this morning saying, well, what is his plan? We just read it. Matthew 28. He wants us to make disciples of all nations. In fact, I know people, sincere Christian people who get out a piece of paper and on the top of the paper, they put their name, my life. And then on that paper, they start listing all the things that they're planning to do. You know, I'm going to go to college and get a degree because somebody told me, you know, job prospects are better if you have a college education. And then I'm going to marry a Christian spouse. I'm not going to marry a non-Christian. Bible says don't do that. So I'm going to wait and marry a Christian guy or Christian girl. And, and then I'm going to get a, we're going to get jobs and pay off our school debt. And then we're going to buy a house. We're going to buy a house, not rent. Go to, you know, build some equity for the future. And then wherever our jobs take us and we buy that house, We'll find a church just like Harvest you know, that preaches the word and we'll go there and, you know, we're young and we're both working, newly married, so, you know, we can't get that involved at the church, but we'll park cars. We'll, we'll, we'll uh, you know, help with the kiddies. Uh, we'll uh, sing in the praise team. Uh, and if the church has a short-term uh, thing down to the Caribbean or to South America for a week, we'll scrape together a little cash and go along. Uh, by the way, did anything I say just then sound bad to you? No, it all sound pretty legitimate to me. And then they put a, a dark, solid line in the bottom right-hand corner, and they bring it to the Lord. And they say, Lord, these are the things I'm planning to do. You're my king. I want your signature. And the Lord says, well, that's really interesting, because I was just getting ready to give you a page. It looks just like your page. It's got your name at the top, and it's got a dark, solid line in the bottom right-hand corner. And this is what I want you to do, and I want you to sign. And you look at the page and you say, well, Lord, there's just one problem. What's that? The page is blank. That's right. Uh, Lord, there's nothing on it. That's right. Okay, so you want me to sign? Yes. Uh, okay, Lord, let me see if I got this straight. Okay, you want me to sign, and then after I sign, you're going to put stuff there. You got it. Well, could we talk about this first? Sure. What would you like to talk about? Well, Lord, what if, what if on my page you say, missionary? I just want you to sign. Lord, what if you say, India? I just want you to sign. Let me tell you, folks, there's not a greater contrast between Catanning and Siliguri. I can tell you that right now. Lord, what if you, what if you say, inner city. You know, I like the rolling hills of western Pennsylvania. I just want you to sign. Lord, what if you put the name of one of my kids on my page and call them to serve you in some faraway country? I just want you to sign. What if you, what if you call one of my grandkids? I just want you to sign. Lord, what if you say, what if you say martyrdom? You know, death for the sake of Christ. Now, at CIU, the school where my wife and I are serving, we have a, a, a residence hall called Memorial Hall, and in the lobby of that hall, we have a martyr's wall, and on that wall, we have the names of CIU graduates who have gone as missionaries and who have been murdered in the line of duty because they went as missionaries of Jesus Christ. And we ask our students to go and stand in front of that wall and read those names and read their stories and then in their hearts say to the Lord, and Lord Jesus, if you want me on this wall someday, that's okay. 
What if the Lord says, martyred? I just want you to sign. Elizabeth Elliot, whose husband Jim was martyred trying to reach the Alca Indians in Ecuador in 1956, has written some tremendous books. And in one of her books, she wrote this statement, and I thought it was so good I wanted to share it with you. She says, I've heard people say, I would just die if God ever called me to the mission field. Do you know what I would say to that, she writes? You won't be much use out there unless you do. Nobody wants you out there unless you haven't already died to yourself and presented your body as a living sacrifice. Please do not bother to go to the mission field, end of quote. Now, nobody's talked to me about anybody here this morning in this room. But knowing human nature, I am sure that there are some people in this room here this morning that need to take that page that you've been writing on with all of your plans and you need to tear it up into a thousand pieces. You need to reach out and take the blank page from the hand of the Lord, sign in the bottom right-hand corner, and in so doing, say to him, Lord Jesus, anything, anytime, anywhere, I'm ready. Lord, the answer is yes. Now what's the question? You see, the answer here, the, the question here is not missions, it's the master. It's not the cause, it's the king. Look what Jesus says to us in Luke chapter 6. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? And you might be sitting here saying, well, what did he say? He said, all the world, every creature, go, make disciples of all nations. That was 2,000 years ago. And here we are 2,000 years after he said that, and there are still 2.35 billion people living in the world right now who've never heard about Jesus once. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Now, I'm being hard on you this morning, purposely, hopefully lovingly, and I want you to know, watch, that it's not an easy thing to sign the blank page. No, it's not. Do you know why? Because what the Lord puts on your page may indeed be very difficult. It's always right. It's always good. But it may not be easy. And that's why it would be wrong for me to end my message this morning without looking with you just for a minute at the last verse in Matthew chapter 28. You see, we started with verse 19. We went back up and look at verse 18. Now we have to go down and look at verse 20. Look what Jesus says. And surely, verse 20, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, um, I've said this already once in the message, but I just want you to know that when a speaker or one of your pastors refers to the Greek language when they're teaching you from the New Testament, we're not showing off. You know, we say, well, in the Greek it says, and you're like, oh, brother, you know, who do they think they are? We're not trying to show off. All we're trying to do is help you to understand the intensity and the intentionality of the original language. And so here, interestingly, in the Greek language, Jesus says, and surely I, and the word I in the Greek language is a very interesting Greek expression called the ego eimi expression. What it is, is a literal repetition of the personal pronoun I. So if you literally translated what Jesus is saying here and what the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew to write here, he's saying this, and surely I, comma, I am with you always. Now, that's interesting. Why does Jesus repeat the personal pronoun? Why does he say I, I? I think he does that because he wants you and me to be sure and understand who he's talking about. He says, now listen, just in case you don't know who I'm talking about, it's me. I, I will be with you always. Now watch. Here's the question. Who is the I who promises to go with us? The answer is the one who has all authority Jesus Christ. Now, up in verse 18, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. When you see the word authority or power in the New Testament, it is almost always the English translation of the Greek word dunamis, interestingly, from which we get the English word dynamite. Dunamis. And that word is used to describe Jesus in different parts of the New Testament. 
the power, the authority, the dynamite of Jesus. But in verse 18 of Matthew 28, Jesus uses a different word. Matthew, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uses a different word to describe Jesus' authority. He doesn't use the word dunamis. He could have, but he doesn't. He uses the Greek word exousia. All right, so we got two Greek words here, dunamis and exousia. Both can be applied to Jesus, but in Matthew 28, 18, it's the word exousia. What's the difference? Watch. Dunamis means authority or power. Exousia means authority or power in legitimate hands. So it's the difference between a criminal with a gun and a policeman with a gun. A criminal who has a gun has dunamis. He has power, authority. He can back you up against the wall. But a policeman not only wears a gun, but he wears a badge, and he has exousia. And Jesus says, that's the kind of authority I have, and I am going to go with you. Now, let me illustrate this for you just quickly from two worlds that you are familiar with. First of all, from the world of football. Now, yesterday, yesterday, uh, my wife and I were in State College, and our grandson, Andrew, wanted to watch a rerun of the Penn State-Ohio game. Oh, my goodness. I mean, how awesome was that? So we watched it. Now, the reason why I love to watch football on television is because of the commentators. You know, I mean, they're like this encyclopedia of knowledge, and they tell you all this stuff. And remember, if you're watching a game on TV, after the opening kickoff, there's the run back, and then there's a bit of a pause. They might have an advertisement in there, but during that pause, they flash up the starting line. You know, they show you the guy's pictures, and they tell you some of their stats. You know, linebacker, 360 pounds, no neck. You know, like, what? Where did this guy come from? How do their mothers feed them? I mean, these guys, this is what, this is what I call a modern-day example of dunamis. This is raw power. These guys can do serious damage, and they do. But the real authority on an American football field is not the 360-pound linebacker lined up across from you. It's the little skinny guy with the striped shirt and the whistle. You see, he has exousia. The guard, the, the, the linebacker can knock you down, but the ref can throw you out. And Jesus says, that's the kind of authority I have, and I'm going to go with you. Let me illustrate this now from the world of American baseball. I love American baseball, and it's been my privilege three times to preach the gospel in the locker room to the Philadelphia Phillies baseball team. I've always also preached to the Florida Marlins, to the uh, Los Angeles Dodgers, and to the St. Louis Cardinals. And the reason why I've been in their locker rooms preaching the gospel of Jesus has nothing to do with me, because they don't know me from Adam. I happen to be a personal friend of a man named Jack Hibbard, who was the chaplain of the Philadelphia Phillies baseball team for years. And years ago, when we were living in southeastern Pennsylvania, he called me on the phone and he said, how'd you like to speak to the Phillies and to their opposing team this weekend at the stadium before their game? I said, awesome. He said, great, you're on. Now, don't do what you usually do when you come to the game. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I'm going to guess when you come to a Phillies game, you start out about an hour early and you drive down through the city into the inner city because that's where the stadium is. And you park probably about a mile away because the parking is cheaper. And you walk to the stadium and then you buy a real cheap ticket way up in the top section. And then halfway through the game, if you see some empty seats, you might slip down and sit. And I said, how did you know all this about me? And he said, you don't have to do that this time. You're the speaker for the chapel. You just drive around behind the stadium. You'll see a big iron gate that says VIP parking. You pull your car right in there and park right outside the Phillies clubhouse. So I did. And the minute I pulled through that gate, an armed guard came out, stood in front of my car and said, where do you think you're going? And I tried to explain, you know, I was the chapel speaker. I didn't have any paperwork, no proof. He was not buying my story. I was starting to panic. And right then, the clubhouse of the Phillies, clubhouse, the door opened. Out came Jack Hibbard, the chaplain. He walked over, stood next to my car, looked at the guard and said, I'm with him, and he's with me. And immediately, the guard said, come on in. Do you know why? Because Jack Hibbard has exousia. And then we got to the clubhouse, and you can't, you can't walk in the door of the clubhouse. There's an armed guard standing there. He looked at me, didn't budge. Then we saw Jack next to me. He got his key out and opened the door, not because of who I was, but because of who was with me. Are you following me? We walk into the clubhouse. Friends, I tell you, the first 
person I met in the Philadelphia Phillies clubhouse was world famous gold glove Michael Jack Schmidt. I shook his hand. I just happened to have a clean baseball in my pocket. (laughs) He signed it. I took it home to our son. I shook hands with the players, and we did the chapel. Then they took me out on the open field. You can't go on the open field. But I did, not because of who I was, but because of who was with me. Dang, when the game started, I didn't have a, a seat up in the nosebleed section. I was, had a box seat on the third base side right behind the dugout. And then when the game was over and all those poor people were still trying to get out of long-term parking, I was already home. Not because of who I was, but because of who was with me. Now listen, listen carefully. Come with me one second to North Africa, where I was a year ago. 1,200 Arab young adult believers praying about God using them as missionaries across North Africa and the Middle East. At the end of one of my Bible teaching sessions, a beautiful girl by the name of Sarah from the country of Egypt came to speak to me. And she had tears in her eyes and she said, Dr. Murray, I'm willing to sign the blank page. I'm willing to go where Jesus wants me to go. I'm willing to do what Jesus wants me to do. My problem, sir, is not that I'm not willing. My problem is that I I don't think I'm able. I don't think I have what it takes to be a missionary. I I don't think I have what it takes to really learn another language well. I don't think I have what it takes to be far away from my church and my family and my friends. I don't think I have what it takes to go to a country where if they find out I'm a Christian missionary, they're probably going to want to kill me. You know what I did? I showed her Matthew 28, verse 20, where Jesus says, I'm going to go with you, and I have all. Authority. So what's the message of Matthew 28? Here it is. It's that because Jesus has all authority, we must go to the nations. But it's also that because Jesus has all authority, we can go to the nations because he goes with us. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Community Church. We invite you to join us at any one of our four campuses located in Catanning, Petrolia Valley, Indiana, and Freeport. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org.